Intersect Radio, where music, faith, and life converge, with your host, Aaron the A-Train Smith. Welcome, everyone, to Intersect here at the Intertalk Radio Network. I hope you guys are having a great summertime, great day today. We're here in Nashville. It's raining off and on. Boy, is it muggy and humid. But uh, that's what you get when you're in the South. Uh, So I am so glad to be here, though, in the studio. I'm very excited about today's guest. Uh, I'd like to introduce you to him. He is recognized as one of the most prolific cultural influences to come out of Nashville. Charlie Peacock is a Grammy award-winning record producer, songwriter, and recording artist with hundreds of credits, including the 77s, Amy Grant, DC Talk, Switchfoot, and the Civil Wars as well as contributing to the Academy Award-winning 12 Years a Slave soundtrack and composing, producing the title music for AMC's Turn, Washington's Spies. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome today on Intersect Radio, Mr. Charlie Peacock. How you doing, Chuck? Hi, Aaron. I'm doing good, man. I'm uh, happy to be on this program for you and with you and i i apologize it's taken us so long to pull it together but here we are here we are it didn't take long at all (laughs) you're here (laughs) now you're just being kind (laughs) you're here now that's all that matters what what are you up to this summer um we're spending a lot of time uh, organizing the last 40 years of our life. <laughs> and that's a big part of what we're trying to do this summer. That's, that's Andy and I, my wife, Andy and I, and yeah. um, you know, that's everything from, you know, going through um, old stuff from our kids to uh, my career stuff and, you know, photographs and everything. As I, I've been telling people that no grown man should have so many pictures of himself. So <laughs> that's, that's what we're trying to do is clean all that out. And, um, and then uh, I've been writing a lot of music. Um, yeah, yeah. I write, I generally write every day. 
for a, mm-hmm. for a while. Mm-hmm. Do you have a studio set up at home or just a keyboard or what? How do you do it? No, I have a, I have a small studio. Uh, you know, uh-huh. we moved from the art house uh, about four years ago now. Uh-huh. And um, so we, we live in Green Hills now. And, and uh, I'm kind of back in the bonus room, you know, from the uh, late 80s when we first moved to Nashville. And so uh-huh. I've got a, a nice studio above the garage here. And it's, um, it's just perfect for what I need. You know, I mean, I basically mm-hmm. sold off all of my, you know, my big time studio gear. And now I'm, I'm kind of in the box with Pro Tools and and a few pieces of gear that are about the history of popular music, you know, like Neve preamps and 1176 uh, compressor and LA-2A compressor. And, you know, that's the sound of uh, pop music history. So I've I yeah. still got that if I need it. <laughs> okay. Hey, it's a studio still going over at the art house. It is. It is. Yes. Uh, we sold the, uh, the art house to a friend of ours from Dallas. And then uh, he put some other friends of ours in the, uh, in the old church there and they live there and they've rebuilt the studio and it's just everything about it is just first class and very lovely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How is the art house functioning these days? Well, Andy and I are uh, emeritus founders, and so mm-hmm. we're involved, uh, but um, you know, not on a day-to-day level. There's there's a couple here in Nashville, um, Nate and Cassie Tasker, who run the Art House Nashville, and then um, you know, there's the Dallas Art House, and then the St. Paul uh, Art House as well. Mm. I, how long have you had the St. Paul Art House? Uh, let's see. We're, I think it's been five years now, and Dallas is coming up on eight years. Mm-hmm. Does it serve in in same way as like a respite for people to go and hang out, read books, meet and greet? No, each one is very different. Um, the uh, the one in Nashville is is very much like uh, the way Andy and I had it. So it's a, it's a family that lives there. And then there's uh, sort of incoming, um, you know, events where people come to uh, events, but it's not on a daily basis. So mm-hmm. there's the studios being used, you know, in a commercial sense. And then uh, the um, sanctuary of the old church is being used to gather people for everything from Bible studies uh, to, uh, to speakers, you know, basically the same thing that Andy and I were doing. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Dallas is very different. Dallas is uh, highly programmed. There's events every week. There's all kinds of things going on around uh, Metro uh, Dallas. And, um, and it's just, very high. I would say it's like very highly organized and and put together, and we're very proud of what they've been doing there. And then St. Paul is, um, is Sarah and Troy Groves that run that there, and they have a, a small uh, church that they've created the Art House North out of. Hmm. Okay. Well, you know, um, you may recall that I had the distinct pleasure and honor of going with you and Andy to the church 
That's right. Before, before it was the art house. That's right. Then you were we, there in the very beginning. Yeah, and then we went back to your house and you pulled out your journal and told us how God had already told you about this place and what to do and yeah. how to conduct yeah. it. It was great. And I even yeah, slept I mean, in the balcony a few times. <laughs> yeah. It's a good thing you didn't get any lightning strikes. <laughs> oh, I had some great dreams, though. Yeah. No yeah, doubt. I had many a great dream up there in the balcony. Well, let's let's uh, let's go back to Yuba City for a minute. And, sure, um, love to. And tell us about uh, your life growing up and your interest mm-hmm. then at that time and how it was back in the day in Yuba. Yeah, I mean, when I was a boy, Yuba City was still um, an agriculturally based uh, town. I wouldn't even call it a city. It truly was what you call a town. It was small, you know, 12,000 people in the whole county. And um, agriculture was it. You know, there were a few other businesses, and we had Beale Air Force Base there. Um, But it was largely about agriculture. So you would live in a house, and then kind of right outside your door would be a peach orchard or walnuts or prunes or whatever it might be. Uh, and then lots of rice rice fields as well. So mm-hmm. for me growing up, uh, I had a lot of space to explore and, and imagine. And of course, this was a time when children could go out and, you know, go two miles from home, you know, playing right. in, out in the, in the fields. And, um, you know, I mean, obviously that time has passed, but, but that's mm-hmm. what the world that I grew up in. And, and so it was a world that was very much about imagination. And, you know, I wouldn't trade that for anything. It's like, sometimes people will ask me, you know, how'd you become a record producer? And I said, because I grew up, I grew up in a farm community, you know, you've got to have patience. You put a seed in the ground, you know, <laughs> you water it and it's going to take a while to get some fruit. Yeah. From it. And um, so there's things like that, that informed me. Uh, from an early mm-hmm. age, um, and also my my um, grandparents uh, were transplants, so they came from Oklahoma and Louisiana. So my dad was first generation Californian, and mm-hmm. and that made for you know a different kind of family too, because you kind of had this Oki influence and then this um, Louisiana influence uh, in terms of food and and just the way people talked. And then uh, my father was a musician. Uh, he played in the Air Force dance band, and he uh, came back home from that, worked for the telephone company for a while, and then decided to go back to school uh, on the GI Bill. You remember that? Yeah. And, uh, and then so he went to uh, Chico State and got his teaching credential and, and became a music teacher. So that was really the environment that I grew up in. My dad played music all the time. He played, you know, what they were called in those days, dance jobs and casuals, you know, which is something that's from mm-hmm. our generation too. And yeah. so he would often play Friday, you know, Friday and Saturday night and then also teach all week uh, at Marysville High School and then later at okay. Yuba College. 
So that was, you know, I mean, I grew up around, and there was, I I, I, I suppose I'd say there was never a time when I wasn't aware of music around me. Mm -hmm. Did you play trumpet ever? Yes, I did. Yeah, I started on trumpet. You know, I used to, I wanted to start on so many different instruments and, and I told my dad I wanted to play drums. And so he brought mm-hmm. home a snare drum and a practice pad and two sticks and told me I had to learn these rudiments first. And, and so I was like, <laughs> well, that's not a drum set. And so then I told him I wanted to learn saxophone and he brought home a clarinet and said, you're too small to play saxophone. Learn to play the clarinet first. <laughs> so you know, finally, when when I said, "Well, okay, I'll play trumpet," then you know, well, then uh, I got to do that. But uh, that you know, that was one of the problems with growing up with a with a music teacher. You know, yeah, um, we've he, lost. He, we've he lost actually you. wanted you to learn something first, right? And plus, we've lost a, the a many possible fine drummer once they saw yes. a practice pad and a pair of sticks. Oh no, no question, yeah. But that's the what one, you that? know. That's the way my dad was. He was very much about you learning the fundamentals, and um, mm-hmm. you know, he, it was difficult to be his son when he was teaching you something. Um, yeah, he had a, the bar was very high, and, and it was like you know, kind of like I'm not raising a son who doesn't excel, and that was mm-hmm. um, kind of the basis for. Um, you know, my, my getting started in music and, and, mm-hmm. you know, I had to be the best at trumpet. I'd be the best at music theory uh, and all of that, because my dad was a teacher at rival high school and, and, you know, he didn't want the music teachers at the other high school to think that I was a slacker. <laughs> so you were teachable. Oh yeah, no, I was very teachable, and I, I had some uh, other good teachers, a uh, fellow by the name of Dean Estabrook that that I studied trumpet with and music theory. Um, you know, in high school, uh, we had two years of music theory, which was incredible. You know, yeah, which now wow. you wouldn't get until you went no. to uh, university. Right, right. Wow. So, when did you start playing keyboards? I started probably, um, you know, maybe the summer of eighth grade, um, uh, going into high school. I had started to do sound on sound recordings uh, and borrow a neighbor's four track. And mm-hmm. so I I borrowed a drum set from a neighbor and, and a bass and a guitar and I had the piano and I had one microphone that I bought. It, uh, it was a uh, realistic uh, microphone that I bought from Radio Shack. And so I, you know, stuck that on the piano and played a piano part and and so on and so forth, you know, and that's how I was working out my first songs. And in those early, early things, I'm not really sure, you know, I would write them out on manuscript paper too in a primitive way because my dad was mm-hmm you know, teaching me to, to write out rhythms and, you know, be able to make lead sheets with my melodies and lyrics underneath them. Uh, But really the first two songs that I recorded, uh, the uh, first one was called Needless to Say. 
And uh, then the second one had uh, a bit of influence from Andy. You know, I'd say I wrote it for her. And that mm-hmm. was called, are you ready for it? Hey, Lady Love. <laughs> so those were the first two songs that I, that I recorded. And uh, cool. I don't know if you what? know the story or not, but after I recorded them, uh, my dad took me down to David Geffen's office in um, uh, Beverly Hills on Sunset really? Boulevard. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I, I left them two cassettes in a paper bag, you know, the kind of bag that you would your mom would send your lunch. Lunch. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, put your name on it. So how did you get into David Geffen's office? I just walked in. You know, wow. they probably thought it was the funniest thing in the world that this, you know. I mean, you know, I in, in those days, I mean, I could have been a sophomore in high school, but I looked like a seventh grader. So yeah. they probably thought this was the funniest thing in the world, you know, <laughs> and we're just going to be sweet to this kid and... And we were vacationing in Morro Bay, which is by San Luis Obispo. And so I had read an article in Yuba City about David Geffen and all artists that he managed and helped get started. You know, lots of artists that I love, like Joni Mitchell and Jackson Brown. And so I I just thought, well, I've recorded my first two songs. Clearly, this is the person that I have to go see. (laughs) So... uh, Straight so, to the top. Uh, yeah, straight to the top. So, um, it, you know, little did I know, like, you know, how incredibly, um, you know, critical he was to that time in music. So mm-hmm. um, we were vacationing and then my dad agreed to to drive me, which was about another three hours, drive me to uh, David Geffen's office, where also Asylum Records was. And that's, I think mm-hmm. I was probably thinking more about, you know, Asylum Records. And um, we dropped off the tapes. Uh, they were very sweet to me. We got back in the car and we got a hamburger and then we drove back to uh, San Luis Obispo. Wow. And then about six weeks later, I got a very nice letter from them saying, uh, thank you for submitting your material. We're not able to use it at this time. Uh, please uh, continue on what you're doing. You know, it's very kind of. <laughs> oh, that's great, man. I never heard that story before. So that, so that was y- my start. Yeah. So what, what, how did you, um, what moved you to start recording in the first place? Uh, I think it was the records that I was listening to because, you know, up to that point, I had primarily listened to, um, the jazz records, which were my dad's uh, collection. So it was either jazz singers, kind of jazz pop singers, uh, like Tony Bennett or Ella Fitzgerald. And then, um, you know, jazz, everything from Monk to um, Miles Davis and Coltrane and all sorts of stuff that my dad had. So Mm -hmm. um then it was kind of like once I, once I heard James Taylor and Jackson Brown, you know, for a young kind of boy that was just, you know, beginning my teen years, that all of that stuff, the romanticism of it and the sort of longing that was in the lyrics and the way it was sung just rang my bell. So I kind of turned my attention mm-hmm. towards that. 
And then, you know, then I kind of figured out a way to, to mix them both. But I always felt like I was, you know, I sort of had two lanes, two tracks that I was on. One was the singer songwriter that, that loved all that early stuff in the seventies that also loved, um, you know, the horn bands of the era that also loved, um, R&B from Philadelphia and from Detroit and, and then loved all sorts of jazz. I mean, for my eighth grade graduation, I got bitches brew. So that'd give you an idea of like where I was beginning (laughs) and that kind of music, you know, was something that was more accessible to me Uh uh, in terms of, of playing that, uh, you know, so like we played, um, I think it was Pharaoh's Dance from that record and a Jeff Beck song at a battle with the bands my freshman year. Oh, yeah? So Was the, it your band? You know, so, well, yeah, it was a band that I was in with some other kids. Mm-hmm. And um, and, I, and I think we did a Ma Vishnu song as well. Wow. And so that was the, well, I'm, I don't know how well we played it, Aaron, <laughs> but we took a shot at it. But it and, was adventurous. Yeah, so it's kind of like I had those two tracks. And, um, you know, Andy and I got married in 1975, a year after she graduated from high school. And I graduated as a junior. And I went to Yuba College. And we started our my second semester there. And then we decided to move to Sacramento. And um, that was you know, just the beginning of us kind of moving out of the little farm town and seeing what we could get going. And, and uh, we went to uh, Sac State, Sacramento State University for a mm-hmm. short time. And that was when I met um, the the guys in the runners. And, uh, mm-hmm. and it was when uh, that was same era was when I met Al and, uh, I don't know if you remember me telling you this before, but when we did, when we moved back to um, to Yuba City from Sacramento, because we sort of like had to go back and lick our wounds, you know, because we couldn't make enough money in Sacramento. Oh. So, uh-huh. yeah, and then also, you know, we had our first child, Molly was born. So we moved back to um, just to uh, Yuba City. And at that time we were living in a, condominium that my parents had and I used to call you at Berkeley uh, or wherever your apartment was and you would never call me back or write me back and this was uh, it was in uh, July of 1977 I, I remember that and and you know that Wurlitzer electric piano I think you still have it I so still have that it. Wor- I yeah, so that Wurlitzer electric pan- piano was there, and I was writing, you know, jazz uh, songs at that point, writing lots of music in that uh, condo, and calling you <laughs> and trying to determine whether I should go to Berkeley uh, College did, of Music. Did you did and, you leave a message somewhere? <laughs> oh, I'm, yeah, I'm sure I did. Well, Al, you know, Al gave me your your number. That's how I got it. Okay. Uh, and then, so I was like checking out Berkeley. I was checking out the creative music studio in Woodstock. With uh-huh. The idea that, you know, maybe we'd go there because, you know, Lee Konitz was there and Carla Blay and 
Ed Blackwell and all these different mm. musicians that mm-hmm. were great jazz musicians, composers. And, you know, it was the tuition and room and board. Ah, that's not possible either, you know. And then everybody's yeah. saying, yeah, but it's not possible for you to move to Boston either. You know, <laughs> you're about to have a baby and and oh, it's yeah. just not oh, yeah. just not smart, you know. I never, I really, I never I knew you so were calling me. I never knew yeah. you were calling oh, me. No, I, um, well, I don't know how many times I call you, but I was probably pretty persistent. I didn't, I did write you a letter too, I think. You did? But anyway, anyway, this was all, well, all me okay. trying to connect <laughs> with somebody that has anything to do with Berkeley. And, and uh-huh. you were the only one that I knew of, and I didn't know you. It was just strictly from, from Alfonso Key. Yeah, and and you know he and I had started playing together and doing um, some gigs together. Uh, we were playing at a place called the Ball Market, mm-hmm. and um, and in various other gigs, you know. And then that uh, that's how uh, Al uh, ended up knowing the Runners guys and, okay. and playing with them. How and did then you I meet think Al? Finally, see, um, I met Al at Yuba College. Al okay. was taking a class, uh, I think a theory class from my dad. And then he had um, Wayne with him. And then not too long after that, then uh, John came out. And um, and then my dad uh, taught John music theory as well. Really? Yeah. I, I, it's a super funny story. My This is you know, maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, but uh, I had a wonderful assistant named Katie and um, she, uh, you know, got a phone call and as she often did, she, she would check with me, you know, are you able to take this call or not? So she comes downstairs in the studio and she says, there's a John Peaky on the phone. <laughs> and I, I said, John Peaky? <laughs> and I said, you mean John P. Key? She says, I don't know. He says his name's John Peaky. <laughs> so anyway, your oh, old yeah. friend, family, and the great gospel singer, John P. Key. Yeah. Killer. I so, never knew so he, were, were, he was in Yuba. Yeah. Well, actually, they lived out in, uh, outside of Marysville. And... Um, and, you know, shortly, I think you, uh, Al took me to a house in Marin County that I think you all maybe lived in with uh, Miroslav. Yeah. Is that, is that correct? And, yeah, that's correct. And then, you, yeah, and then you were coming out, I believe, to play with Al uh, and maybe Roger up at Lake Tahoe, but do you remember yeah. what your first gig around Sacramento was? Was that it? That was it. Yeah, we were we yeah. were practicing so, at Rogers. Yeah, right. So, so Al so took you, you to Marin. Al took you to Al took you to Marin yeah, he, to yeah, the house to after house. we were out. Yeah, after you, we were out of it. We had why gone did he to, do that? Well, we I think it's because we went to play uh, at a club in Marin with the runners. Uh-huh. And so it was wow. just, hey, let's drive over there and let me show you where we used to live. Okay. Um, hmm. All right. 
go on. <laughs> go on. <laughs> well, um, I guess the going on part is, you know, being um, a young uh, musician who was married, who had a child, and and you know, trying to figure out how to be a working musician. And mm-hmm. uh, I've been I've been doing that to some extent um, since I was 14 years old, and I mm-hmm. always played with musicians that were 10 years older than me. And uh, played clubs and dances and and all that sort of thing as as really a, a very young person. And then um, and every once in a while, you know, I'd have to get the dishwasher job or the fry cook job or stockroom yeah. job. But but I would never last very long. I mean, I was a horrible employee because mm-hmm. all of my drive and ambition was to be the best musician I could and do. Mm-hmm do music for a living. You know, that's, that mm-hmm. was my dream to be able to do that. So I practiced a lot. Um, and I wrote a lot of music and tried to get better on my instrument. Um, I had never had any lessons on piano, so it was kind of, you know, just making my way as best I could. And, uh, the same with writing songs, you know, I listened to great songwriters mm-hmm. that I, I thought were good and tried to, get inside of, of that. But, but, you know, I, during that time, I did not like my voice at all. So in the early hmm. days, I didn't sing my songs. I would have someone else sing them. Oh, really? Uh, because, yeah, I just, um, I don't, I didn't like the sound of my speaking voice. And mm-hmm. so if I sang in my natural voice, it felt too high and like it didn't have enough kind of punch to it. And so when I first started singing my songs um, in the uh, late 70s, I had a very affected kind of uh, I, kind of a cross between Elvis Costello and Bruce Springsteen and a, a dying goat. You know, it, was, it was just <laughs> not good. It was not good at all. Hey, I remember, um, I remember coming up to your apartment and hearing... Uh, Baby, we were born to run. Oh yeah, no, I love. Remember that? that? You used to blast that record, man. Oh, I love that record so much. Yeah, tramps like us, baby, we were born to run. Yeah. So, how did you get back to Sacramento? Um. Well, I I started had a band, you know, in, in Yuba city and, uh, just felt like, man, it's, it's time, you know, it's time to go back to, uh, to Sacramento and, and see if I can make it there, you know? Uh So, uh, in August of 78, I went to moon studios. Uh, I had a couple of songs I'd saved up some money to record and I had recorded at Moon just briefly with the runners on a few songs. So I knew about okay. the studio. And that's where I met uh, Steve Holzapple. Okay. And, you know, I mean, I, I only I recorded for like, you know, five hours, right? Mm-hmm. On two separate days. I, I think one was recording, the other was mixing, if I remember right. And uh, right after that, Steve said, Hey, you don't have to pay anymore. Um, wow. Let's, 
let's spend some time together. Maybe we'll write some songs together, but I'll record you for free. So, really? um, you know, that was incredible. You know, so mm-hmm. that, that's how that relationship started. And, um, and I kind of feel like maybe sometime after that is, is when we played together at, at uh, Pat Miner's house in, in Sacramento. Yeah. Uh, I just have a memory of us being in that house and playing together. Yeah. And then you having to leave for a, for a gig out of town. Um, hmm. But I, you know, I was playing in a top 40 band uh, and that was kind of how I was, you know, making a living. Um, but I was miserable, you know, absolutely miserable. Hmm. And um, so probably by, you know, late 1978, I knew like, I mean, I had a burning in my <laughs> in my belly to do my own music. You know, I just mm-hmm. had to, it was like, I, I was getting ill doing, uh, you know, singing, do you think I'm sexy by Rod Stewart? Yeah. So, so <laughs> I just, I came back to Sacramento and, uh, a fellow, um, named Maurice Reed had just opened up this little bar, um, with enough, just barely enough room to uh, play music in. And it was called Maurice's. And mm-hmm. uh, Steve, uh, Steve Holzapple and Pat Miner were friends with Maurice. And they were very, this is very much the art crowd from downtown Sacramento. And right. they embraced me. And I started playing just solo piano and singing my songs, uh, you know, on mm-hmm. an old wood piano there. And, um, and that's, that's how it all started, you know. Wow. Um, and that's when people started coming to hear me play, and yeah, um, you know, that's that's where I first met Sal Valentino, and mm-hmm. he's the one who took me to L.A. for the first time, and you know, that's how I got a development deal with A and M Records, and you know, everything just sort of went from there, and then met you know people that became your friends too, like uh, Peter Bilt and, and mm-hmm. who played on um, those early demos with David Kahn. And, um, yeah. and then, you know, you know a lot about everything from there on out, but that's kind of the start, uh, yeah. the start of things for me of when I, when I really began to do only my music and that was it. You know, I, I was either playing a jazz gig or I was doing my own music at Maurice's. Yeah. Yeah. Maurice's man. When I think, I think sometimes we used to play Maurice's at least five times a week. And, but it was oh, yeah. always, oh, yeah. it was always in a different band, the same guys, but yes. the band had a yes. different name. <laughs> yes. That was Eric. Uh, um, Clevin would choose Clevin. a different name. Yeah. Yeah. He would, you know, so, um, Often it would be Charlie Peacock's autograph, but yeah. you never knew what he was going to write on the chalkboard up there. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that that kind of, you know, indicated a, a sort of looseness and, and how much fun mm-hmm. it was. And it was before, you mm-hmm. you know, you weren't making music like, yeah, we've got to get a record deal, you know, or publishing deal. You were just trying to create something that interests you you know, that would keep right. your own attention and be interesting right. enough that, 
you know, it would get people to turn the other way on their bar stool and look and listen to you. Right. And um, people were and listeners I think it was then good. too, you know. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. you know, those early days playing at Maurice's was very much people would come to listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are great days. I, I, I remember those days fondly. Uh, you remember mm-hmm. that one rehearsal studio you had down in this little business complex? Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was cool. And Eric Clevin. Yeah, we actually yeah, we rehearsed there. We actually took did a photo shoot there too. There's yeah. a photo mm-hmm. of all of us in a stairwell. But um yeah, we used to practice there. Um uh one of the memories I have it was it was um it was either the band Ozzy or the band the Twinkies. They had that rehearsal space before us and they didn't leave anything in there, you know, before we occupied it, except for a jacket made of American cheese. And, and I, I don't know if you remember that, that. but yeah. it was an entire, entire yeah. jacket made of nothing but American cheese still in its, you know, Pack, in the wrapper uh, or the little bit of plastic yeah each yeah each piece still in its wrapper like it used to be and so it was all sewn together in the wrappers you know mm-hmm. so, and they'd made mm-hmm. an entire suit coat out of it it was brilliant <laughs> yeah you guys turned me on to tacos that was that, that taco joint oh, around the corner there yeah Jim Boys. Jim Boys? Yeah. yeah. Jim Boys, yeah. Jim Boys Tacos. Tacos every day. It was day. all in the grease, man. All in the grease. <laughs> it was greasy. <laughs> yeah, that's how we got the funk so. going. That's right. We're slipping in and sliding in the funk, baby. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> all right. So, um, yeah, I remember meeting you and all the guys in Sacramento down at that was a breakfast joint down on, I think it was 8th Street at the end of 8th Street there. And, and yeah, they were Monica's. Their, yeah. Or not Monica's. Uh, uh, Is that it? Oh, Nicole's. It was called Nicole's. Nicole's, yeah. that's it. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I met all yeah. you guys in the back room there. Al and Roger brought me down there one Sunday. <laughs> yes. We used to go there for free food. <laughs> and uh, I, I think there we had. How'd some, you get uh, it for free? Um, you know, I'm not really sure. I guess people took a look at me at that time and and just thought immediately, you know what? He has no money. <laughs> we might, we need to feed him. Oh boy! <laughs> yeah, but we used to go there place. to Nicole's after the after the gig too. You know, right, and, right. A friend of ours would open up the place, you know, and then we'd just go back in the kitchen and make food. Mm-hmm. And this was, it's really strange too, because that was a legit restaurant. But somehow we had our, found our way in there. Wow. So, um, how did you, uh, you know, we did, we almost got this thing, uh, I remember Peter Bilt coming up to Sacramento and he had this idea of us getting together and, and being a show band. You remember that? Right. Right. We met in the Chinese restaurant and, um, 
It was like I was on going Broadway. Like, yeah, there's no way I'm doing that, man. <laughs> well, he kind of did that, didn't he, with the expressions? I mean, as far as yeah. a bigger band, kind of, you know, before you guys uh, put your trio together. Yeah. So, and plus so maybe he had, that's he had, what he meant to do. Well, he had that association with his, his girlfriend, Katie, too. She was in that band that was named after some Hollywood actress. Um, mm-hmm. And they did they did big parties and stuff like that in San Francisco. Right. I think that's what right. he had in mind. He, he wanted to do something yeah. like that, I think. Yeah, I didn't want to go there. I was, no. in, my, I was in my jazz bow days then, man. Yeah, you were having study with Alan Dawson. You had to use those chops. Yeah, it's like, ain't no way I'm doing that. So, <laughs> Not going backwards, then. <laughs> right. So, well, I think um, we uh, we all tried our best not to go backwards and to yeah to yeah. Uh, prepare ourselves to to play the music of our generation and beyond. You know, try to forecast mm-hmm. where music would go. Mhm. Yeah. And it's it seemed possible. I mean it was it was still so free then too, you know. There there weren't too many responsibilities and and uh every yeah. day was music, you know. All my friends yeah. were musicians in Sacramento and and mm-hmm. the, you know, we we lived close together and you know, used to go over people's houses and listen to records and talk about records. Yes. And, you know, it was great. That's it was right. a great time. So when did you meet the the, the Neelys? How'd um, that come about? Well, I was um so I had probably the most popular version of uh, Charlie Peacock band or group was in late 81 through 82. And um, that was the one with Darius and Jimmy Caselli and Mark Herzig and Eric. And I would say for Sacramento, I mean, that was kind of the, the height of our popularity. I mean, we were everywhere, playing everywhere. It was the most interesting music that I'd ever done and created. And, and um, so we had a, you know, a pretty big following and, and I was booking um, a lot of other clubs and sort of getting people from San Francisco up to Sacramento and then them getting us down in, in San Francisco. And all of that kind of energy and productivity happened when, um, you know, I became sober, you know, cause I, mm-hmm. I was really, really in the depths of, alcohol and drug abuse at that time. Hmm. So I, you know, spent a good bit of time uh, kind of, you know, returning to my senses and to what it would mean to be a faithful husband and father. And then I just really started taking that, you know, very seriously, you know, trying to make up for lost time. Mm -hmm. And so 1982 was, you know, I mean, I, if, if in 1981, you know, I made, you know, grossed $5,000, you know, in 1982, it was 10 times that, you know, yeah. uh, because I I found my sort of inner entrepreneur, uh, my music got better, uh, and it just, 
you know, it was that that kind of moment. And mm-hmm. so uh, in late uh, 1982, um, I was playing at, at Maurice's actually. And um, there was a, as I was walking in the stage door, there were two young women there. And um, they said, um, can we pray for you before we, before you go in? And I was like, well, yeah, sure. That's fine. (laughs) Because, and it was so surprising, you know, I never had that happen walking in the stage door at at a club, Mm -hmm. but there was a reason for it, you know, because um, I had been up at Lake Tahoe uh, in late 82 uh, playing with, um, or not late. It was actually early 82, uh, playing with um, a um, you know country band in the I don't know, cabaret room, you know, and John Denver was headlining, and, and it was like a two-week gig. And then I came down the mountain uh, from Lake Tahoe and got a phone call from a tenor saxophonist named Mike Butera. Yeah. And he and I had spent like one evening together, you know, because I, I was subbing as a piano player at the top of the Holiday Inn. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, you know, I went up, I was just reading charts, you know, and and, um, and then went and did that gig in Tahoe, came back home and Mike Butera calls me, right? And when we were there in the Holiday Inn, he was, you know, he was really, he was a really cool guy. And I mm-hmm. knew that he was a Christian. And so, you know, I would pray every day to the God of the Bible to help me to be sober and to uh, have mm-hmm. resources for our family. And I'd do that mm-hmm. in the, in the morning. And then I would thank the God of the Bible in the evening as I, you know, lay my head down on the pillow. And that mm-hmm. was kind of my routine for about a year. And so when I had met Mike, uh, I told him, I said, hey, thank you for hiring me um, um, because I, I've been praying for work. And he, and he immediately says, who do you pray to? <laughs> and I said, well, I pray to the God of the Bible. And so mm-hmm. I, don't really, I don't really remember what he said at that time. <laughs> but um, so when I got back from Tahoe, he called me and he just said, hey, listen, this is going to sound really weird. But uh, for the last three weeks, I've really felt this nudge from God. and It just keeps coming up in my mind that I'm supposed to call you and see if I can come over and pray with you. And mm. and my response was was like. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, I pray in the morning. I pray at night. I guess I can pray in the afternoon. And so so he came over and um, we did pray together. Mm. And he asked me, you know, a critical question at one point, which was basically boiled down to, do you think you need a savior? And, um, you know, I could feel that the tears swelling up because I knew if anybody needed a savior, I did. Uh, I was very guilt ridden by uh, 
my failures and and sin. And I was, you know, just overworking, trying to make up for it by trying to take care of my family. And mm-hmm. um, so we talked about, you know, many things in that that moment as he laid out the gospel for me. And, um, you know, I, at one point I was just, I could feel the energy of, of my old life and, and kind of the energy of staying in that place. And then I could, it was almost as if there was a line drawn, uh, in the shag carpet, you know, the green shag carpet. Mm. And, and that if I was stepped over that line, um, and took Mike's word for it and felt, Mm -hmm. you know, what I was feeling and thinking at that time, if I just stepped over that line, my, I was no going back, you know? So Mm -hmm. I was, I mean, I paused, you know, because I just knew that I said, man, this is, you don't go back from this. If I say yes to Jesus, this is going to be my life. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, I mean, I, I confessed, I professed that I believed and that I wanted to mm-hmm. follow Jesus Christ. Um, mm. And of course, in the vernacular of that time, very it was very much, you know, to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Right. And so right. that was my understanding. You know, we prayed together. Right. Um, I mean, it's the first time I've ever, you know, I had ever sat with a person, you know, uh, and just prayed together in a room. Um, uh-huh. I'd had some interaction at church, uh, with my grandparents, but I, you know, never anything that intimate and that personal. And, mm. uh, I think I was very moved by it. And from that moment on, you know, um, the life was incredibly different. Uh, I made some, you know, immediate changes in my songs. I had like maybe three songs that had the F word in it. Well, mm-hmm. I took those out. I, I mean, I, I was a baby Christian, but I figured, yeah, they probably need to go. <laughs> and then, uh, and then I, because I was so popular at that time in uh, Sacramento, I used to get a hundred percent of the door and 10% of the bar, you know, which any musician, you know, listening to this will know that's a pretty sweet deal. Yeah. And, um, and so the other thing that I did was, is I went to the various club owners and I said, I can't take the 10% of the bar anymore because I'm very aware that many people come here to, uh, to drink too much. And, and I just don't, I don't want to be responsible for that. I don't, I don't want to take that money. You know, I mean, I just, I saw it as mm. kind of dirty money, even though, yeah. you know, I mean, I, there, there were people, other Christians who said, you know, you got nowhere else to go nowhere else to go yet until God moves you, you got to stay where you're at, you know, cause this is mm-hmm. where you got saved. And, mm-hmm. and so I did that, you know, I did that for a year and, um, and just played everywhere. And again, was very successful at what I was doing. That's when I was making a ton of, of, uh, commercials and soundtracks and, uh, working for uh, Heavenly Studios as a staff engineer, doing all of their stuff that they were doing with the magazine and radio station. And, you know, I mean, I was just working like crazy. Hmm. And uh, so at the end of that year, um, you know, there was the incident with with the um, 
uh, young women who have come to pray for me. And then I realized, you know what? I think the word is getting out that I'm a Christian. <laughs> and uh, and uh, <laughs> I really knew it was true. And I was uh, I went to play a gig at Lord Beaverbrook's. And uh-huh. um, I walked in the uh, the restroom to use the restroom, and there, written on um, the uh, one of the stall, one of the walls of the stall, in in marker was Charlie Peacock became an effing Christian. Really? And I'm like, okay. I was like, all right, I've arrived. <laughs> <laughs> they know. <laughs> People know, and they're not. Uh, wow. But some were very happy, you know, and I started seeing a lot of Christians coming to my gigs, you know, uh-huh. and uh-huh. Um, and I still remember the evening when I met Jimmy. Uh, he was sitting kind of in the front row and very excited about everything he was hearing. And we talked after that and um, he, you know, he was kind of my guide. You know, um, Mike Butera, the person who'd sort of ushered me into the kingdom. And then Jimmy Abeg was, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the guy that that I trusted, you know, and I think Mm -hmm. it was because he was an artist, you know, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't very far removed from from the world I was in, you know. And, you know, Mm -hmm. when you live downtown, Sacramento and you're kind of in the art crowd and what that means in terms of the way people, you know, are living life and, and, uh, where their emphasis is. And, mm-hmm. and, and so Jimmy was still very artful, you know, I mean, and just things like, you know, I, he lived in a teepee, you know, and, and had come to Christ wow. when he was on a beach, you know? Yeah. Um, right. And, and right. so it's just things like that. It's like, okay, this guy's different, you know. He's not a church kid, you know. I can relate to him. Um, mm-hmm. And so eventually he said, hey, I've got some people I want you to meet. And uh, that's when he introduced me to the Neelys, uh, and specifically wow. to Mary. And, um, and then I was going to a Calvary Chapel church, uh, um, mm. that was in Sacramento too. And that mm-hmm. was my first church where I, I really studied the Bible. You know, every Monday there was a Bible study in the afternoon that I went to. And I, I listened to Chuck Smith, uh, teaching tapes, you know, I, I mean, all day long, pretty much. If I wasn't listening, uh, making music, I was listening to Chuck Smith teaching tapes. Yeah. And, uh, so I was very, uh, embedded in the Bible and, um, you know, I, I kind of like thought, you know what, maybe I'm supposed to be a pastor, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe I need to go to Bible college. And uh, I, re- I remember Jimmy sitting in our kitchen, right? And uh, he's he's smoking a cigarette, right? And he's kind of like blowing the smoke away, you know, as people do. And he's telling me, he's saying, man, I really don't think that's what God has for you. Um, I mean, you know, I just, he says, there's plenty of people who, um, who can be pastors. I just don't think that's your calling. I think that God's got something for you with music. Hey man, uh, that hour went by really fast. Can you come back next week? Yeah, of course I will. All right. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be back to continue the story of this fabulous life of Mr. Charlie Peacock. This is Jackie Bertoni from Jackie's Room. Come join me weekly on my journey through the music business as I take you behind the velvet rope, interviewing industry notables such as Al DiMiola, Michael McDonald, and Al Jerome, to name but a few. Listen to their stories on being in the studios recording number one hits and onto the stages throughout the globe. Allow me to be your music historian. You can hear me live every Monday at 2 p.m. and every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Standard Time or 24-7 on Jackie'sGroove.com. Ready to get your groove on? Hi, this is Tim Dolbear from Eclectica Studios. I'm a full-time mixing and recording engineer. I work with Grammy winners, labels, and indie artists using state-of-the-art digital mixing and restoration tools and the very best in analog gear. Really, though, it's my ability to bring tracks to life and fulfill your vision for your music. This has made me sought after by producers and artists worldwide. So spend your time working on music and not chasing a mix down a rabbit hole. Go to timdolbear.com and check out our free one-song mix offer. You know what's all around you every waking moment of your life? Marketing. You're choking on it. I'm Scott Robertson, and when it comes to strategic PR, branding, and marketing, I've seen it all. And actually, I'm still seeing it because bad marketing never sleeps. Join me each week on May the Best Brand Win right here on Intertalk Radio and learn how to make the marketing for your brand unforgettable. Are you serious about your music? Are you ready to run with the big dogs? The experts at Pitbull Audio have the gear to get you into the game. From leading manufacturers like Mesa Boogie, Fender, Pioneer, and American Audio. To sound your best, you need the best. Pitbull Audio can deliver in rehearsal, on stage, and into the big time. Dropping beats, shredding guitar, or making the crowd roar. Whatever you dream, Pitbull Audio can help make it happen. We are Pitbull Audio. We want you to play it loud. PitbullAudio.com.